Have you ever come across an odd myth, strange story, weird history, or something that just made you scratch your head and say to yourself, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Well, you're in luck, and you're in the right place listening to the right podcast, because this is the story of... Next episode of the Story of Podcast. I am Smith. Joining me this week is Mr. Dr. Mike, Joey Camp, and good old Joe, who's back again. Did, did everybody get the differentiation between Joe Camp and, and Joe? Did we did we get that, gentlemen? Are we squared? I we good? So. I know who I am. <laughs> I'm such a dick sometimes. Anyways, um, we, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Podcast Story of wherever you guys are listening to us. Please subscribe and give us a five star rating. We would really appreciate it. It'll help us to become more visible to more listeners around the world. And that would really be pretty cool on your part for us. So with that said, we are here this week when we're going to take you guys through a couple of stories and of Former or declassified top secret documents, top secret projects, if you will, and uh, and it'll it should be a lot of fun. So uh, we this week we aim to tell you guys the story of top secret declassified programs. All right, we elected uh, that uh, Mike would go first. Mike, you ready to roll, kid? I am ready when you are. I think we're ready, Joe and and Joe and Joe Camp and Joe Camp and Joe. Are you guys ready? All right, so tonight I selected to do the Pentagon Papers. Nice. And when I selected this topic, I knew nothing about the Pentagon Papers and just wanted an interesting topic. I hate the word interesting, and I'm not going to use it. I wanted a topic that was going to be something where I really learned something and would really get a lot out of it. All right, so if you don't know what the Pentagon Papers are, it was a top-secret study by the U.S. government, and what it did was it actually looked at the decision-making process the U.S. made during the Vietnam War. Uh, the study was commissioned by then-Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in 1967. Yeah, he, he's going to play a role in my story as well. We're going to come yeah. back to good old Bob McNamara. So, um, the study was conducted by a team of analysts at the Rand Corporation. Do you guys know what the Rand Corporation is? No. No. So, the Rand Corporation essentially is a gathering of some of the world's, well, the, the U.S., some of the smartest people. And it's really just a think tank of a group of people. And what they really do, so Rand actually stands for Research and Development. Okay. Ah, okay. It's a nonprofit global policy think tank and a research institute that conducts research in multiple fields of industries, including national security, education, public health, energy, environment, economics, political science, infrastructure, uh, law, criminal justice, anthropology. I was like, who are these people? This is the cabal. 
I was right. Like, like when people refer to the cabal, that's who they're talking about. Like that's the that's the Illuminati, man. Okay, so some of the notable participants of the Rand Corporation, and I went with people that obviously that I have heard of, and maybe you guys have heard of. Henry Kissinger is one. Condoleezza Rice, mm. Donald Rumsfeld, and the man that we will talk about, Daniel Ellsberg. Now, so a lot of neocons for sure. Yeah, and and a lot of folks that will, I will actually mention within my story as well. A lot yeah, of, okay. Uh, warmongers, it sounds like as well. Yes, yeah. quite quite a bit of uh, of warmongers for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to give a little bit of a, a background story on uh, Daniel Ellsberg. That way, you kind of get an idea of his character and who he is. So Daniel Ellsberg, he grew up in uh, Michigan, I think inside, like right outside Detroit. Um, he had lost his mom and his sister when he was young in a car accident, when his family was going on a family vacation. Mm. Um, he was sitting behind his dad who was driving, mom and sister on the passenger side of the car. He winds up getting into an accident. Mom and sister both die. Uh. So now it's him and his dad. So even with that... You know, he, he has this loss. He still realizes that there's a greater good, and he's going to go on to do some amazing things in this world. Uh, so he actually went to Harvard University, graduated summa, co- summa cum laude with mm-hmm. a bachelor's in economics in 1952. He then goes to Cambridge University for a year to study, then returns back to Harvard for grad school. Wow. In 1954... He says he wants to be a man that serves his country. Now, in 1954, enlists himself in the Marines, has three years of service, and is discharged as a first lieutenant. He then returns back to Harvard for two more years, continuing to work on his graduate degree. In 1958, he starts working for the, for the Rand Corporation. He winds up completing his uh, PhD in economics in 1962. And then he starts working for the Pentagon in 1964 under Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Okay. So now how we got all the way back. So you, you now have a real story of who this guy is. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's not a run-of-the-mill idiot. He's a yeah. very smart man. And when I was reading about some of the things that they do, I'm sorry, go ahead, Dan. Well, I was going to say, you painted a good picture of how he got into the Pentagon. Yeah. Right, and, and, and so, yeah, how he got to that position to be able to release the Pentagon Papers, so. Cool. Yeah. Qualified. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so he then, once he starts working um, under McNamara, he winds up spending two years living in South Vietnam at the State Department. And so he's over there. He, he's in Vietnam during this time, and he's seeing what's going on. And he realizes that these are just everyday people. There, there's no hatred. There's no reason for the things that are going on or about to go on. Um, so after he returns back to the U.S., and he goes back to working for RAN, and then he continues to work... Um, on the study that winds up coming out later on, which is United States and Vietnam relations from 1945 to 1967, uh, which is that document that McNamara had requested him to work on. And pretty much what it was, was to really shed light of what was going on 
in Vietnam, what was going to happen as far as the war, also at the cost of what it was going to actually be to win the war. At the time, Johnson was the president, and his, his plan was really just to try to win this war at all costs. He wanted to win. Yeah, total war, war of attrition. He wanted to be the president to win the war. And I, I think we start running down that road of all these guys that want to be the guy to finish the war. Who's yeah. the guy that gets the win? They certainly don't want to be the guy that gets the loss. You know, exactly. And, and, that's exactly. The, and sometimes work in a very irrational, non-communicative manner in order to, to, you know, to fulfill their particular personal mission. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play a little recording. And it's just a little bit of from an interview with uh, Daniel Ellsberg. And it's really about how once he starts writing these papers and reviewing everything before he's about to submit it, you start to hear what he's really learned from the whole process. And to me, I, I heard this and I was like, wow, I'm like, this is, this is pretty emotional stuff to hear. In August of 1969, I read the earliest parts of the McNamara study for the first time. Seeing the war from its beginning affected me more than I thought possible. It changed my whole sense of the legitimacy of the war. What I learned was that it was an American war from the start. President Truman financed the French to retake its former colony, even though he knew the French were fighting a national movement that had the support of the people. The cost of defending freedom, of defending America, must be paid in many forms and in many places. Eisenhower supported a brutal dictator in canceling elections called for by the 1954 Geneva Accords. So we opposed elections while pretending to support democracy. We are attempting to help Vietnam uh, maintain its independence and not fall under the domination of the communists. Kennedy lied to the public and to Congress, saying we would need only advisors, even though his own military experts told him that South Vietnam would be lost without an immediate commitment of American combat units. We still seek no wider war. I now saw that Johnson was continuing a pattern of presidential lying. Each president wanted to avoid the stigma of losing Indochina to communism on his watch. It wasn't that we were on the wrong side. We were the wrong side. So with that, I mean, it's pretty powerful. The words spoken from a man who's working on the inside and seeing all these things firsthand. And being regular people, we don't know these things. We don't know the truth behind all this stuff. Yeah, you know, and, and it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, obviously, uh, being a history teacher, it's, um, I've studied quite a bit of this. And it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's when you study these things, is what, I don't know, really kind of changes the way that you view American history, you know, and, and, and I chose those words very specifically, not the way that you view America, because you've also got to understand, and I, I was just discussing this with my students the other day, that there is a discernible difference between the United States government and its people, and America and the United States government, right? There's, there's a discernible difference, and people, not enough people make the difference uh, or make that, 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 you know, that distinction there. Anyways, but yeah, there's, um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of these instances. You know, I mean, you can bring the Vietnam War back to uh, Woodrow Wilson and his 10 points and and self-determination and how he really only meant self-determination for white countries because Ho Chi Minh went down there to go talk to him and Woodrow Wilson threw him out of the office because he was Asian, he was Vietnamese. So, you know, but I'm sorry, Mike, continue. No, it's good. And just in case you want to know, there's a really good... Um, miniseries by Oliver Stone and it's called mm. The Untold History of the United States. I have the box series. Wow, that is I, amazing. I got, I got it in my closet right there. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking really good. I Funny, back. well, not really funny, but backstory, I was actually um, with my dad. He was going to have spinal surgery and I was like, I need something to help pass my time as I'm waiting for him to spend the next, you know, 10 hours in surgery. And I literally watched the entire mm-hmm. thing in the waiting room just to keep myself occupied. And I was just blown away by the whole thing. Um, so if you get a chance to go check that out, uh, definitely do so. All right. So next, what we're going to hit upon is the tenant offensive which is uh, part of the war had started to reach into the major cities in Vietnam. Um, so what happened was there were attacks um, going on. And usually what they do is um, on New Year's or holidays, there'd be a ceasefire. And what actually happened was the northern Vietnam and the Viet Cong looked at it as an opportunity. Yeah. And they literally just came at them. And this is a good one for the idioms. Balls to the wall. Balls to the wall. Yeah, they, they, um, they, for months, they got people in strategic places all along the Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah. And then right before Christmas, uh, the, yeah, the, the Tet Offensive was pretty insane, man, because they hit uh, within hours of each other all over the country. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. So the result of that, it really led, one, to he- heavy casualties for Northern Vietnam. Um, but it also showed, you know, Southern Vietnam and, and, and its allies that the North can now really coordinate a full scale, large attack. And a lot of it actually, they said, shook the confidence of the Americans and public leaders seeing all that was going on. And especially as they, as that was happening, they were on the verge of saying, well, the war's over. We're winning this war. It's almost over. Yeah. And then that happened. So it really just took everybody by surprise. So Ellisberg, and I quote, I'm going to read a little quote from him. He said, I realized that my previous attitude has been mistaken. I wasn't discharging my responsibility to the country, the Constitution, the public, and the troops. By keeping those secrets uh, that led to the escalation of war has been wrong. And now what would I do to make a difference? And that's what started his first thing, where he actually leaks information to the New York Times about the strength of the enemy during the war. Yeah. And what Um, it does is essentially it shows how much the administrations were lying to the American people. What you were being told by your government about the progress in this war is not true. Uh, They are lying to you. So this was happen. This these leaks were happening during the Vietnam War. Like it's happening, and this guy is leaking yeah. information. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, at that point, once all that had come out, um, Johnson, President Johnson, decided that he would he would actually withdraw from the presidential election. Uh, 
Um, and that's really kind of what forced him out. Mm-hmm. And next man, the next man up was Richard Nixon. Yep. And Nixon in a commercial, and I, I wish I had the recording of it. Um, but he states that we will have an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. Nixon winds up winning the election because of the promise of how he's going to bring a peaceful end to the war. This is the irony of Richard Nixon <laughs> using the word honorable. Like, right. Oh. He had no desire to end no. the war. Not one bit. His, his idea was, we're winning this war or I'll drop a bomb on them. And and he has really kind of, you know, no business using the word honorable, you know, and it's just like the irony is just what, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pot calling, no, tea, the pot calling the, the kettle, pot black. kettle black. Yeah. Did I get that one? Did I, is that, is that? Where that one comes from? You tried. You tried. All right. So now in, in March of 1971, Ellisberg actually, uh, leaks the study to the New York Times, um, and he was very. It's very interesting on how he he actually did it, because what he did was, he actually was making copies of the reports, but he was there to all hours, at the office working day and night for months making photocopies, and. In an interview, he was actually talking about how he had brought his kids in to actually help them, one, make photocopies, two, to collate everything, and three, his daughter was cutting off on the pages, top secret, which was on the top and the bottom of the pages. That's awesome. Wow. And then there's a story about how one night he was there with the kids working late, and two LAPD officers came up to the office and saw them all in there. And I think what happened was they must have set off like an alarm or something. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, it must have been a mistake. And they're like, all right, no problem. Have a good night. Meanwhile, <laughs> potentially doing, doing crazy stuff. Potentially violating federal espionage laws with his children. Exactly. That's so, father of the year. Great story, though. Kids had to, had to commit treason. No, no big deal. Um, so now now that the New York Times actually gets this document in March of 71 they realize that they have so much information and it's such a sensitive topic that they literally um, took a suite in the New York Hilton and they literally made that into a separate office just for them to work on this project and as they're going through the whole process they reach out to the lawyer because the New York times has lawyers. That's I guess part of their, they're on staff that they're there and they have any issue. They'll run it past the legal team first. And, you know, and he said, Hey, listen, I'm just worried that this information you have is sensitive material. You know, they could come after you with the espionage act Mm -hmm. um, just for publishing this information. And then after a while, they came around to the conclusion that this wasn't to harm but it was more to educate the public of what was going on. So on um, Monday, June 14th, 1971, the New York Times published its first story regarding Pentagon Papers. Hmm. The next day, the Times actually gets a letter from the Attorney General prohibiting them to publish anything further. 
two days later, um, actually two days after the original publication, a judge orders them to stop. Yep. So all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, that's it. They're done. There's nothing he can do. But what Ellisberg did was he didn't just make one copy. <laughs> he, he made, made multiple. Tons and tons and tons of copies. And to the Washington Post. Exactly. His next step was to bring it to the Washington Post. So at this point, the FBI was now looking for Ellisberg. Ellisberg was in hiding, but he had it planned out that these things were going to get delivered all over. He asked the editor, then I'm going to, I don't want to butcher his last name, uh, Bedenkin, Bedenkin. Sure. And he gave him, he said to him, he's like, listen, I have this information. If I give it to you, will you publish it? And his response was, absolutely. <laughs> Now, this is the same Washington Post that's about to break the Nixon scandal in, in a few years' time as well. Yes. You know, so the Washington Post had fucking balls back in yeah. the 70s, you know? So Ellisberg gets the information to uh, the Post, and they start to pick up exactly where the Times left off. From there, literally, the, it starts getting picked up all over the country. The next is the Boston Globe. And it was the, um, the Sun Tribune, I think, LA Times. Everybody's picking up the stories, and he's getting these things delivered to these newspapers. He had this planned out so well that he could stay in hiding, and this was all being done. Wow. This, it's been, he, once he pushed the first domino, yeah, it all, the rest of the plan just unfolded from there. Yeah. It's a Rube Goldberg type of move. So the other thing that then happens as literally chaos is starting to erupt. <laughs> over, uh, Senator Mike Gravel was asked to read the papers in front of the Senate. So he was part of a committee that was like a parks and rec thing. And he literally got into an office by himself because nobody else was there and just started reading all the stuff. And at the point of reading the information to the point that he did not stop until one in the morning at a pure exhaustion, mm. physically and emotionally. And at times he would start breaking down and crying as he's reading wow. this information. So eventually Ellisberg comes out and he is indicted under the Espionage Act for unauthorized possession and theft of the Pentagon Papers. At this point in time, if convicted, he can serve up to 20 years in jail. A reporter asked him when he came out, they said, Daniel, are you afraid of going to prison? And he responded with, wouldn't you go to prison to help end this war? Pretty powerful words. So the New York Times later on, they actually wind up winning the court ruling from the Supreme Court, which allows them the ability to continue to publish the story on the grounds of the First Amendment. Establishes the prior restraint doctrine uh, or rule yeah. within the Supreme Court. The SCOTUS precedent. Nice. Yeah. yeah. In December 1971, Ellisberg was now facing conspiracy charges and eight other charges that now would bring his prison sentence up to 115 years in prison, convicted. So on a, in a radio interview in 1972, Ellisberg states um, that he gave up his job and his clearance on a gamble for freedom. Mm. So then in November of 72, what do we have? Nixon wins re-election in a landslide too. 
Let's but he that. actually winds up winning 49 out of the 50 states, yeah, which is unheard of. So as Ellisberg is at trial, the judge actually goes on to dismiss all charges against Ellisberg. Judge rules that the government had tainted its own case um, to a point where it's impossible to have a fair trial. Wow. The government really shot itself in the foot so bad because of all the recordings, all this information that was coming out. You couldn't have a fair case. There's no yep. way. Um, so when the trial ends, Congress finally voted to actually cut off funding for the war in Vietnam. Wow. So in, a, in a brief little summary, you know, the, the whole study reveals that the U.S. government had been lying to the public and to Congress about the progress of war. War was much more costly and unwinnable than previously thought. Um, it's also revealed that the U.S. government had secretly expanded the war into Cambodia, Cambodia and to Laos. Which was illegal because we never declared anything with those guys. Absolutely. And that um, President Johnson had been planning to escalate the war even further. The papers obviously caused a national uproar and led to the landmark Supreme, ruling, uh, Supreme Court ruling that upheld the freedom of the press to publish classified government documents in the interest of the public. Yep. It basically, they stated that, you know, in this particular case, they cannot use, you know, again, prior restraint to, to uh, restrict papers from, from being, you know, uh, published beforehand, especially in this case, because what Ellsberg was printing was not putting any, you know, military personnel in danger. It wasn't putting anybody... In the side, you know, in, in the line of the site of a Vietnam or North Vietnamese soldier, you know, it was you can't do, and you, in other words, you can't censor things to, you know, that are going to make you look bad. You're going to look awful. Like these papers are going to make you look like a bunch of jerks, and you can't stop them because you want to save face. Sorry, that's that's not a, it's not how this whole Constitution thing works. You know. See, I didn't know about this. I because I, I was going to ask, like, why wasn't this espionage? And I guess you guys just answered it. Like, he didn't reveal stuff that no. would hurt the American military or put anybody in danger. It was no, mostly yeah. just information we, that they were hiding from you, but it wasn't like national security level information. If you if you really think about the, the level of clearance that he had and the information that he had. Um, you know, it, it's just so crazy that he, fa he knew all this information that we would never have known hmm. unless he opened up his mouth. And God only knows what would have happened if we had stayed and continued to fight that war. Is his release in the Pentagon Papers, is that how we uh, learn about the Gulf of Tonkin incident? Or is that something that comes out later in life? Oh, he was actually, he actually stated in a documentary that that was actually his first day on the job. The Gulf of Tonkin incident. So, if you're not familiar with that, so what happened was it was a military strike in which I think three boats from Vietnam had attacked a U.S. ship. North when I say Vietnam. attacked, I'm sorry for North Vietnam. When I say they quote unquote attacked, the ship um, took one bullet hole. That was the, the first attack. The second attack, which they then said was that big military strike that they had against us, was a lie. Mm -hmm. It was also in the Pentagon Papers saying that it was a lie. It was a fake story to propel us forward into this war. Yep. So 
we were brought into a war because of a lie. Which um, sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, it's a little uh, hazy recollection. I don't, I don't yeah. I feel like I've heard that story. I think one of us is going to talk about that further tonight. Yeah, I think so. All yeah. right, Joe Camp, you're up, kid. All right, folks. Well, my uh, topic for tonight is the story of nuclear testing in the United States and um, the subsequent testing on humans, uh, radiation mm. experiments by the United States government. It sounds so, very illegal. Yeah, and immoral. <laughs> very um, unethical. Nuclear testing is is a whole huge topic category, and it's one of my favorite parts of American history because I'm a scientist, and I just love that part of the history. And uh, I think we all know the story of Trinity and uh, the Manhattan Project. Mm. And, um, to put that in a nutshell, idiom, right? Nice there. idiom. <laughs> right again. Nice, okay. nice job, nice job. Uh, the Manhattan Project was the development of the first atomic bomb as a conceptual weapon that the scientists wanted to develop it and see if it could actually happen. And it did happen. And then we know the, the use of it afterward in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The other side of the project though, was now that we can develop a weapon, what are going to be the after effects? Because Mm -hmm. in the early 1940s and 1950s, when nuclear testing was happening, people didn't really understand the effects of radiation. They knew what it was and they knew that, nuclear weapons could emit radiation but they didn't really understand what would happen the long-term effects how long of an effect things like that so the weapons have been built we know we can do that now it's on to what's going to happen if we use these weapons or how do we protect ourselves from using these weapons or if other countries use these weapons um so after hiroshima and nagasaki as early as 1946 the first U.S. atomic bomb testing was happening in uh, the South Pacific. And uh, the U.S. military went out to uh, the Bikini Islands, which you may have heard of, and began testing a bunch of nuclear mm-hmm. weapons out there and testing the, the strength of them and then again testing the effects of radiation. So they weren't going to sacrifice humans for the testing. So what they did was they took warships And they packed the warships with animals, with goats and sheep and pigs, and kept them on crates on the decks of the boats, and then vaporized those animals as the atomic bombs went off, of course, just to to see uh, the burn levels and, and, you know, what kind of effects the animals would have. But on top of that, you had ships that were further away at a safer distance that had American sailors on them. And these American sailors were, you know, enlisted Navy personnel, and they were just on their ships, and they were watching these atomic bombs go off. And they weren't given any protective gear. They weren't, um, you know, given any precautions except just don't look at it because it's going to be really bright. <laughs> and uh, cover, Joe, you I, know, just cover your eyes. Can I can I interrupt? What year uh, is this taking place, these, these early? This is only like 46, like right away after Japan. Because uh, I'm... I'm looking here, and I'm not sure if you guys ever heard of the Atomic Energy Lab toy. Are you familiar with that one? No. The the Gilbert U two thirty eight Atomic Energy Lab. It was actually it was a it was an actual radioactive toy and learning set sold in the early nineteen fifties, and it came with four samples of uranium bearing ores: autonite, tobernite, uranonite, and carnonite. A uh, carnotite. I apologize as well as a Geiger counter. 
Um, and so, yeah, it gave children live actual uranium to play with. Uh, and um, yeah, and w- along with a Geiger counter, and it was forty nine ninety five uh, a box in 1950. That's go. pretty expensive back in the 50s. Uh, yeah, yeah, really expensive. Well, if you're buying real live uranium, you should probably pay a premium price, you know. Holy <laughs> shit. Hell not. That's crazy. Capitalism, folks. I wonder how many I wonder how many kids got that and then ended up having weird kids. <laughs> Is that where the hippies come from? Yeah, how many kids didn't make it to the next <laughs> Christmas, you know what I mean? Or or yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. Cut out but I mean, like maybe a bunch of people got it for their kids, and those kids all turned into hippies in the seventies. Yeah. Could could be or <laughs> or, 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 Re- or Reaganites in the eighties. You never know. I mean, look, hey man, I'm all for the hippies. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I would probably would have. My dad was a hippie. I probably would have been a hippie if I was in that uh that age bracket. Probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think smart. so. I would have done one shroom too many. And that's modern times, so you definitely would have been a hippie in the 60s. All right, sorry, we sidetracked. Joe, go ahead. Joe Camp. All right, so we're testing these nuclear weapons in the water, uh, above the water. They're they're still called atmospheric tests at the time. And we have sailors that are just, you know, watching them uh, and just covering their eyes. Afterwards, they they were told to take showers so that any radioactive dust that was on them would wash off. And that was about it. And some of those sailors are are still alive, and they talk about it. And they said, you know, they were wearing t-shirts and jeans on the deck of the boat and just covering their eyes, watching nuclear explosions. Um, yeah, and weren't told anything about. It. Now, some of them developed cancers. Some of them didn't develop cancers. So you now it's it's kind of hit or miss, I guess, at that point. Um, after that, the United States moved its testing to Nevada for the infamous Nevada test site. Uh, which, you know, uh, this was in the, the 50s now. And this is where most of the United uh, most nuclear bombs were tested by the United States. And at this point, again, they were establishing, we have the weapons, we need to, we need to figure out how to protect ourselves, what it's going to do, or, you know, how it's going to hurt people. Now they started putting U.S. soldiers, U.S. Marines, in the desert with the nuclear weapons and digging trenches and foxholes and having the soldiers and Marines um, dive into the, into the trenches, detonating a nuclear weapon and then having them approach it afterwards to simulate a nuclear attack, such as if we were going to be attacked with a nuclear weapon, how would the military respond to that? Literally as the mushroom cloud is still going up, they are marching towards it and you can watch videos of this and it's it's surreal because the the soldiers are just marching and they're watching a mushroom cloud go up 100 you know a few miles in front of them not hundreds of miles but pretty close in front of them um, wow yeah so they were testing the response of the military they were testing the radiation radiation effects they were also testing the psychological effects because a lot of the soldiers were were freaking out. They were were scared out of their minds about this. Yes, they should um, be. They were told again to be just in the trenches, turn away from it, don't look at it, and cover your cover your face with your arms and put your head between your legs and stuff like that. Yeah. And the reports from these guys is that the the heat was so immense it was kind of like a, a really bad sunburn. 
like immediately on them. But the scariest thing was that even with their eyes shut and their arms in front of their eyes, they could see through their skin. They could see their their blown their bones, their blood vessels. They could see the the vertebrae of the guy in front of them that was crouched in front of them because the light, the the intensity of the light of a nuclear explosion is so incredible. It's not just the radiation part of it, but the light is so powerful. So, with that goes- said, you is that kind of like um it was was it almost like I mean you're in science, you're a scientist. Was it almost like turning their eyelids into an x-ray machine? Is that like essentially what was happening? It was yeah. that bright they were getting an actual like almost x-ray. That's what they said it looked like you could look at your hand and it looked like an x-ray. You could see the bones in your hand. Wow. And there was a report from one guy who said, I saw the, the, the backbone, the vertebrae of the guy in front of me. Oh, my just God. to think about that is is terrifying to experience that. Not to mention a few seconds after the blast, you're ordered to get out of the trench and then start marching towards it. Yeah. Go, like, go towards it, too. And well, and I mean, get- also not not to mention, I mean, look, we all it's it's not like they nobody knew the 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 damage right that an atomic weapon could do we knew what happened to hiroshima and nagasaki right we know i mean there was no secret you know what i mean so it's not like this is this isn't still brand new technology to where it's like oh well, is, is this thing really gonna work or not you know what i mean like yeah, they yeah. were well versed in what was gonna fucking happen and then at, to be asked to be out there and to be yeah, walking and, towards and it as, as it's still rising is insane you know and on top of the fact that even just for testing purposes i think i'd be a little bit more angry you know i mean if it's yeah. during a war it's a little bit like oh shit we're in a war but no this God, just man. Test yeah. to be prepared because we were in the middle of the cold war at this point the, you know? yeah well you know it's not it's not like the bureaucrats are are, are, are in there and they're they the trenches running towards a mushroom cloud you know they're safely six miles back with their shades on and behind seven feet of concrete yeah, no no protective face gear no protective lead vest i mean they were just wearing their standard issue you know fatigues and stuff and that's um, crazy man they, they put a lead vest on you at the dentist's office when they're taking a quick x-ray of your teeth yeah and these guys are just a few miles from an atomic <laughs> these mile. dudes are walking that's insane just walking towards it it's crazy yeah they do have very descriptive accounts of like what they saw in terms of, of the bomb itself and what it looked like and the, the atmosphere and this things like that. Um, there are some of these people still alive. They are severely traumatized from it, uh, from seeing it and, and experiencing it. Yeah. Some of them went through it multiple times. They had to do multiple tests going through this, um, which is even scarier. And yeah, so that was a lot of the military testing. Um, then at some point, we needed to establish how is the public going to respond if there is a nuclear explosion uh, or what if what if we're attacked with a nuclear weapon and um, we have to get rid of it. Go ahead, Mike. So is that when we started the uh, training videos of climb underneath your desk and you'll be safe? <laughs> yeah. So the 50s and 60s uh, or mostly the 50s, but the. The fallout shelters and the yeah. uh, the cover under your desk or cover in the hallway in case of a nuclear attack. Do do you guys remember doing that? I do remember that. Yeah, I remember, I remember doing that in that. elementary school, and we went. I to remember, and 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 I went. Well, we we I started. We actually 
were in um, kindergarten. I remember it in kindergarten. We were in kindergarten '89, and uh, and that the Cold War was still a thing. And I remember doing an air raid drill. They called it, yep. and it was and we got under our desks, and you know they must have had some incredibly well constructed kindergarten desks that were going to protect us from nuclear weapons nuclear explosions i can only trust that that was we would had that sort of protection you know but yeah i remember i remember that no i remember too and i tell my dad about it because my dad went through it going to school in the 50s and 60s but yeah yeah, i went through that too in the in the 90s -hmm. and then if you remember in middle school we had a fallout shelter too that had a big sign next to the auditorium yep um, that said fallout shelter and there was a big radioactive symbol yeah, and I'm like, oh, good thing we have that. I guess. <laughs> All right. So, in the middle of the 1950s, the the U.S. Air Force decided we're going to run a test. We're going to unleash a small nuclear weapon hmm. in the air, and we're going to shoot it down with another nuclear weapon. Oh. And we're going to prove to everybody that it this is okay. This is safe. If if we do it high enough, it's okay. So that's what they did. And they had five U.S. Air Force uh, officers volunteer, and they stood out in the middle of the desert, and about 18,000 feet above them, a nuclear weapon went off. And there's video of this, and they, they're just sitting there, and they watch it, and it goes off, and they get, you know, like a little shake, and then they walk away, and they laugh, and they high-five, and this and that, and they survive <laughs> And that was proof to the American people that if we need to shoot down nuclear weapons, it'll be okay. Well, they can detonate in the air, and and we won't. It, you won't get affected. It's okay. And there'll be no fallout. Essentially, was yeah, it? Yeah, now, very when, little fallout. It's okay. When they did that test, was that test also in the desert? That was in the desert uh, again with with military personnel, and these were actually volunteers this time. So, uh, I've yeah. always wondered. You again, so Joe, maybe you can help me out with this. Um, Okay, the world spins on an axis, okay, detonates into the air, and the world is spinning. Is all that cancerous air and radiation just going over everybody as the world spins? Like, you know what I'm saying? With, uh, with the half-life of that way, but I think Mike wants to chime in. Wait a minute, the, the Earth isn't full. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a different episode, Mike. Sorry, I had to, I had to. Yeah, the Earth doesn't spin like this, it spins like this. Ah. Uh. It's no, it not, spins like it's. You can tell by your toilet. Like your this, toilet it, tells you the direction. It, it goes like that. It's like an oval. It's on a. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's flat, so it spins it's, like it's this. It's off center. Rotate my hand fully around. <laughs> that, that's when someone just trying to lie down other parts of the country. Have you ever seen a record player? <laughs> it spins like this, not like this, like this. There it is. Yeah. And again, right we're doing a podcast, so nobody saw it. Nobody can see what any of this is, actually. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Uh, so, so, yo, yeah, okay. does it, so it, it doesn't act quite work that way? At, like, does the, the no, air stay, the... does the air stay with wherever it is going around? Is it, that, that's the point. When the earth is rotating, the air is rotating with it. So, okay. Okay. We're not, we're not <laughs> running into the air of, you know, gotcha. But you do have, you have air currents, so obviously this this air is being transferred around the globe. All this radiation, all this uh, nuclear testing in the atmosphere, uh, led to radiation spread around the globe for sure. And in the nineteen sixty two or sixty three, 
they actually stopped atmospheric testing everybody in the world. And they said, we can't, because we're just spreading radiation everywhere. We could still test, but now we have to do underground testing. And that's when you started having nuclear weapons underground blowing up. And they were testing, oh, what is that going to do? What effects is that going to have? And um, up until the 1980s, I believe. Drinking water? Yeah, all in the desert, so it's okay. It's it's totally fine. Um, short history on Las Vegas, though. When Las Vegas was created, you could actually sit on the roofs of the hotels on the Strip, and you could watch mushroom clouds off in the distance. And it was like a spectacle of Las Vegas. Like You could actually watch uh, atomic testing. That was part of the, the selling point. So, yeah. We missed out on that, folks. We didn't get to go to that. Come to Vegas, watch a mushroom cloud. Mushroom cloud, there you go. Have a few laughs. Have, have a few a... laughs, they say. <laughs> Thank so you for finally, you know, after a bunch of decades, you know, these soldiers, these military people are developing cancers. There are some of them are dying very early. There's some birth defects. There's recurring cancers. And the effects of radiation are, are finally being understood. And the veterans are going to the government saying, hey, you know, you you tested on us, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you going to do about that? And the government's saying, oh, well, you, you know, you can't prove that your cancer was caused by our radiation testing. It could have been caused by smoking. It could have been caused by whatever else. Of course, you have it, but you can't prove that we caused that. You know, the same old story we hear from everybody, every company. Or it's like, company. yeah, we'll try to try to, you know, prove that the lung issues that soldiers today are dealing with are from the burn pits, you know? Yeah, can't prove it. Can't prove it's from that exactly, right? They didn't have a John Stewart. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, so in 1988, Congress passes a compensation bill. They start recognizing and, uh, you know, giving some people some money here and there. And it wasn't until President Clinton in 1994 actually establishes, uh, he sets aside money and says we're going to we're going to call these people atomic veterans and it's a very special class of veterans wow. that served between World War II up to Korea who were involved somewhat with nuclear testing if we were around it or involved in the cleanup or whatever else if you qualify as an atomic veteran you get $75,000 that's your payoff from the US government to circumvent your cancers and birth defects and whatever else you get 75 that this is still open by the way that you could still call up if you are a a veteran atomic veteran or a descendant of an atomic veteran you may qualify for $75,000 payment from the U.S. government for your for your time um now as if that wasn't (laughs) bad enough President Clinton in 1995 sets a press conference and he goes on TV. He, they have a big report about it and he acknowledges all the human testing for radiation that the United States has done. He apologizes for it. He says it was wrong. It was morally uh, uh, irreprehensible and we have to make it right and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And he's finally acknowledging he's declassifying, as we said, uh, all yeah. the atomic tests and all these radiation tests. And he does this on October 3rd, 1995. Do you fellas remember what was happening on October 3rd, 1995? Oh, 
the scandal. Okay, yeah. Uh, Lewinsky. Yeah. Nope. Oh, no. he may have been doing. He may have been doing that too. <laughs> but that was the day the OJ verdict came out on TV. Really? Wow. So in the next day's newspaper, you know, everything is about OJ. And then on the last page, it's like, oh, the president recognizes human testing for radiation. So a lot of these atomic veterans are like, we never heard anything about this. <laughs> we didn't know he apologized. So OJ stole his thunder. He did. <laughs> he definitely so yeah, the, the story gets lost due to OJ. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real thing. It's like I said, it's still open. You know, if, if you are an atomic veteran or you have you are related, you can still call and see if you qualify, kind of like those those television commercials. Now it gets a little dicey because after all the <clears throat> testing in the Bikini Islands, the military had to send cleanup crews to go fix everything they vaporized, basically, and, and radiated. And the cleanup crews were exposed to radiation. But because the cleanup crews weren't part of an operation, they are not considered atomic veterans. So they are not classified, so they don't get compensation because they weren't part of the testing. They were part of the cleanup afterwards. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? Doesn't that work out so nicely? It's such a pencil teacher's definition. Of how to save a dollar. Yeah. $75,000. $75,000, by the way. Really, what is $75,000 going to do when you're sick and dying of cancer? You can't work. You can't provide for your family. Yeah. It's like a slap in the face. Like, I honestly, yeah. I like, you know, I take that money and shove it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah which I think a lot, the, the ones that are still alive today, they probably feel the same way. You know, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I guess they really just wanted the recognition. That was really the fight was getting the recognition of like, hey, we did this. You need to acknowledge it. And the government's like, first off, you're not allowed to talk about it. This was classified for a very long time. You could not speak about being part of these tests because this was national security. You couldn't talk about the weapons, how they worked, what they did, blah, 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 blah. Until President Clinton declassified it in 93 or 94. And then it was 95 that he actually recognized the veterans. And... um. And then said, okay, you know, you can get some money out of this, too. Yeah. But that's wow. the story of our nuclear testing and uh, on, on our military, let alone the civilian testing, which is a different story, too, because that did happen. I just wonder if those people that were, um, once they're given that veteran status, were they then able to go and use the veteran facilities as far as, like, the VA hospitals and stuff? I, I just wonder if they have access to that. Because at least that way is someone that's going to provide some health care for them at yeah. no charge. Um, well, they were still veterans. I mean, they still had VA benefits. Okay. Yeah. It was that class of being an atomic veteran. That was a very special group. Yeah. And I, was, I wondered, I was like, <clears throat> you know, how many, how many people could this be? They estimate it's about a half a million veterans. My God. Like, yeah, four to 500,000 veterans, which is crazy. My God. Great. We're not talking scientists who did this. We're talking just military personnel who were like sitting in the trenches watching these atomic are, these are gr- Yeah, these are grunts. These are grunts yeah. Yeah. that are, are, my God. But I mean, Crazy. look, and this, there's no justification at all, but it shows you 
how absolutely concerned and to a point right scared shitless the United States government was about a potential nuclear war right with with Soviet Union which actually kind of goes right into into my story Mike uh, uh, Joe Camp do you do you mind if I take over yeah that's it. I, think, I, think, I think it's a great I think it's a great segue into my my topic my story for tonight and um yeah mine goes interestingly enough mine the well i'm gonna i'm gonna i am taking in people at home you can't see this because this is a podcast uh i'm gonna <laughs> actually take you through the the un or the yes hold the, on, hold on. The, i apologize that's uh if everyone got paid it's 37 billion dollars what? Oh, from the atomic testing? Everyone claimed that is that comes out to 37 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 yeah, it's 37 uh, da, 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 yeah, 37 billion dollars would be paid out if everyone claimed at half a million people. Half a million people at, at 70 grand, wow. 75,000, 37 billion dollars of testing. It's a lot of things. A lot, of, yeah. Well, it definitely helped out their case that they put the the, the advertisement on the last page of the paper. You know, after <laughs> I'm serious. You know, like the government was not upset about that. You know, um, that's like ever right. hear the uh, the ever are you ever up at four in the morning, just randomly, and you see the commercial for the uh, there was a defective earbud that they gave to all yes military for years in the call of with this class action lawsuit. If you have any tinnitus or whatever. Mm-hmm. You never see that at 8 p.m., but you see it in the morning. So anyways, back to my story, Joe. You interrupted. So I'm going to take us straight through the actual declassified document. Uh, and, and so I will take you guys page by page. Um, Which through... document you're showing us? Well, uh, if, if, What's the story of here? If, you, if you'd let me finish. Uh, I just want to know what document you were showing us on the podcast. I was about to tell you that the document that I'm going to take you through is the story of Operation Northwoods. So, as I was about to say, oddly enough, the last episode, well, the episode that's dropping tomorrow uh, is the 1933 coup. And we happen to be Recording on January 6th when we recorded the episode about the 33 coup with Wall Street. This episode, oddly enough, is being recorded on uh, March 12th, uh, 2023. This document that I have is dated March 13th, March 13th, 1962. So, you know, oddly enough, again, little little, uh, 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 serendipitous, if you will. Hmm. So... A couple of things that we need to know beforehand. We're going to talk about some people and some folks and some time periods here. First thing we're going to talk about is uh, something called the Joint Chiefs of Staff. If you're not familiar with that is, that's the senior most uniformed leaders within the Department of Defense that kind of go up and they give, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the the leaders in uh, the United States military, specifically the government, um, a lot of uh, advice when it comes to military matters. Joe, what's up? We could just say this is the 13th. No one would ever know. You could just redo that whole intro and say that this is the 13th. We're recording another day of that paper. No one would ever know the difference. That'd be dishonest. 
Joe. That would be dishonest. Would add to dramatic, about being uh, honest, Joe. It would, it would yeah. add to the drama of of the whole thing. Joe, I'm not gonna lie to our our audience, Joe. That's that's they 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 come to us for truth, for yeah. ethics, and for honesty. I'm it's not break that we, somewhere. We on you, Joe. <laughs> we have a a collective agreement with our audience that 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 we tell them the truth, Joe, the story of, and not the story of what we want it to be, which would be a March 13th rendition of the story. I'm just saying, you know, bro signs the date. Let it go. You know what, Joe? Honestly, to quote Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 3, Line 92? No. (laughs) (laughs) So. um, That was amazing. Anyways, so I'm going to start off, and again, a little vocabulary here. Uh, The Joint Chiefs of Staff is, again, the senior most uniformed leaders within the Department of Defense, and their job is to kind of get together. Because I don't know if if you are not familiar with the way that the United States government functions, the president is the commander-in-chief. Thus, the the head of the United States military is a civilian. We have a civilian leading the military in the United States, and there is a reason for that. Right. There is a reason where you have a civilian and not a general in uniform actually leading the military. Uh, and, and this this particular case of Operation Northwood is a shining example of why we, we have that set the way that it is supposed to be or the way that that's you know, that is the way that it is set up. So if we're looking at a little bit of context, it's it's March 13th, 1962. We had this is this is really kind of, you know, uh, lining up very, very well with the two prior stories uh, from from Mike and from Camp. You know, the Vietnam is taking place. You've got nuclear testing for sure. You know, um, it, it, it's it's the you know the the this you know the space race. We're in the middle of the space race. John Glenn is going to play into the story, which is pretty crazy. You know, Kennedy is still in office. He has not been assassinated yet. But, you know, we're, we're coming up on on all the Cuban Missile Crisis is right around the corner. You know, we are are we're at a, a really, you know, a, a, a hot moment within the Cold War, so to speak. And so I got this memorandum and I've, I've known about this for a long time, this particular project. And I just thought it was really interesting. So I'm just going to take us through. So, again, uh, well, let's let's go back to the context. Uh, Ju- uh, January 1st, 1959. Fidel Castro officially takes over Cuba, right? Uh, Fulgencio Batista, his regime is, 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 you know, officially kicked out. The United States had essentially been running Cuba through the Batista regime for years. They had, United States uh, essentially had its, its uh, organized crime. We're working the casinos in Cuba for for many a long time, and and the United States government really, for the most part, looked the other way and allowed it to happen, as long as the mobsters were staying out, really, of of the United States. And we know that they weren't in the 1960s, but if they were, look, if you were just kind of conducting business over there, who cares? We aren't going to bother you. You know, if you were money laundering back into the United States, whatever, you know, as long as you're doing your stuff off the coast, you know, that 90 miles down south that way you know, whatever. And so they, they, they allowed a lot of that to happen. And that's one of the reasons why Castro came up and threw uh, Batista out of office. But anyway, so now it's 62. And the backdrop of this particular situation is Castro is now in, in office. We 
uh, are freaking out. The United States is freaking out, right? And Eisenhower, prior to him leaving office, you know, and, and the more I learn about Ike, uh, the less I like him. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, there was a, a lot that I respected about Eisenhower when he came in and he spoke about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. It's one of my favorite speeches by a president. But to know that, you know, he was also illegally, you know, funneling things into Vietnam and also uh, involved in Operation Northwoods where he was really trying to get the United States the ability to invade Cuba back in 59. Um, you know, it, it's just, it seems kind of hypocritical as a guy that was spoke out against the military industrial complex was very eager to use the military industrial complex when he saw fit, you know, to fight the commies, you know, in the Red Scare. But anyways, so I'm going to start it off. So memorandum, subject, straight up, page one, subject, justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. We're looking for a way to intervene militarily in Cuba justification so we need a reason to fight them and that's what we're looking for and so it starts off at, you know the first page it's got a few things that are written there and they you know one of the things it says is it is assumed that there will be similar submissions from other agencies so they it's not just the CIA that's working on this it's the FBI it's the D, you know there's other departments in in the DOD there's a lot it is assumed that many departments of the bureaucracy of the executive branch are all working on ways on how to create a war with Cuba, which is just very unsettling, you know, at the, at, at the very least. Right. And so it goes in there and further, it is assumed that a single agency will eventually be given the primary responsibility. So we'll get, you know, offers from multiple agencies, but assume, you know, it, is assumed that one agency will have the, the right to take this out, right? And then it's signed at the bottom, L.L. Lemnitzer, chairman of the Joint, uh, Joint Chiefs, uh, Chiefs of Staff, and that is Lyman, Lyman Lemnitzer, and, and he's, the, he's the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's the guy, he's the chairman, that will essentially, when this is all said and done, he will take the plot, the plots, and refer them to Mr. Bob McNamara, right, who was highlighted oh so well in Mike's story, Secretary of Defense, I believe that was the position that he held. Yep. And uh, he held the same position under Kennedy. And so, you know, he's going to he's going to be the one that's going to get this and and decide whether or not uh, Kennedy sees it. Right. So this is actually this. This is declassified in 1992 as part of what's called the JFK Assassination Records Collection Act. And so this at once at, you know, once upon a time was kind of referred to as some way would say conspiracy theory, but that is no longer the case. This is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. This is U.S. history. This is declassified from the United States government itself. So there is no theory here. Uh, the only thing that was a conspiracy was there's more than one person plotting to take over Cuba uh, on behalf of the United States, which if two people are plotting to do something, that is, in fact, the definition of the word conspiracy. All right. Uh, anyways, so Castro takes over Cuba in January 1st, 1959, and immediately, like, as we said, Eisenhower is itching to get in there. He's trying to find a way, but Eisenhower's time runs out. He is no longer president. Uh, uh, JFK wins, gets into office, and a lot of the folks 
and the DOD are worried that the Kennedy brothers are um, that they are are soft on Cuba. They're soft on communists because you know as we know where JFK st- originally to the public he stood out as kind of being anti-Vietnam, as we know from Mike's story, he was lying to the public, right? But you know, again, he had this kind of persona of being soft on on Russia, and so. Essentially, what happens is the, the 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 Joint Chiefs of Staff they are they're tasked with again, as I said, with creating this justification to take out Castro. Now, the program Operation Northwoods is actually running side by side with its sister program called Operation Mongoose. And I don't know if you, any of you guys had read up on Operation Mongoose. Operation Mongoose was not the justification for war with Cuba, but a little bit more narrowed in plots to assassinate Cuba, uh, Castro. And so I don't know if you guys have heard, there was uh, exploding cigars. There were exploding seashells, like you'd be walking along the beach and get to a seashell. We'd click a button, poof, blow them up that way. There was one where they were, gonna, they were going to get train one of his girlfriends that in the middle of sex, she was going to kill him. In the middle of, 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 of sex, they'd turn around and assassinate him that way. It was just all sorts of weird, crazy, funny ways that they were going to try to kill Castro. So that's Operation Mongoose, and that is kind of tied and linked into Operation Northwoods. And so, I think I remember reading something about how they were talking about different ways to like try to poison him. Yes, and like they were just coming up with any idea, you know, throwing stuff at the board and see whatever would stick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like they were going to try to either poison or put some sort of detonator in a Cuban cigar. And so when he was smoking a cigar, it's going to be like the cartoon where it's like, <laughs> up in his face. Uh, you know, also one they had like a, it was a pen that was like a, like pretty much it was like a needle syringe all enclosed in a pen. And they can just give him something lethal, like a, yeah, like a KCL injection and boom, yep. it'd be done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so, yeah, so, you know, they had there's a whole bunch of things at play in here. But number one, what they really wanted to do is they needed to do this is this is labeled under discussion. And it says, and I quote, the suggested course of action appended to enclosure a are based on the premise that U.S. military intervention will result from a period of heightened U.S. Cuban tensions, which placed the United States in the position of suffering justifiable grievances. Got to create a, a situation where the United States is suffering a justifiable grievance. World opinion and the United Nations Forum should be favorably affected by developing the international image of the Cuban government as a rash and irresponsible and as an alarming and unpredictable threat to the peace of the Western Hemisphere. So what they're really trying to do is create, leading up to whatever it is that they plan on doing, trying to really discredit the Cuban government, make them look like they have this unpredictable government, they're a threat to the world, right? That it gives the United States, again, this justifiable grievance. And not only to go in, but where the rest of the world would be saying, yes, we need you to go in because these people, they're out of pocket, right? You need to go, you need to go in there and take these guys out. They're just way too dangerous. And that's the United States... Trying that's what you know, that's the, the end goal. They also understand at this point they can say with quote reasonable certainty that US military intervention in Cuba would not directly involve the Soviet Union. That's the key part. And what that does is it creates a timetable. 
they know that this early in 1962, right, they may be friends and on the same side, but they are not linked at this point. Any written pact that if Cuba gets attacked, then the Soviets will automatically have to roll. It's not like some NATO Article 5 stuff. You know, it's it's open at this moment. They put together a list and they say, all right, let's go. As Mike had said, let's throw some spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks, what's running up the flagpole, see who salutes, right? Let's see. Let's see which one of these things are going to work. And they, they come up with this list of, again, justification for U.S. military intervention. And again, they're, they're looking for efforts and planning that would, and a quote, uh, enable a quote, logical buildup of incidents to be combined with other seemingly unrelated events to camouflage the ultimate objective and create the necessary impression of Cuban rashness and irresponsibility on a large scale directed at other countries as well as the United States. So again, it's not just this one particular situation. There's a major psyop going on for months leading up to the particular incident that's going to work. And again, as they say, seemingly unrelated events. We don't know what those are. Those aren't really as much uh, put out there. But this point is, you know, uh, it, it the point is, is, is whether they do something overt or covert, the world at the point of incident uh, would be cheering on the United States that, yes, this is what you need to do. And so they come up with a list, okay? So here is here's some incidents that can here's what they say uh, a series of well coordinated incidents will be planned to take place in and around Guantanamo Bay right we are all familiar with Guantanamo Bay it's the United States military base in Cuba to give genuine appearance of being done by hostile Cuban forces now what we also need to understand is anybody who was not a Castro sympathizer may have been put to death in Cuba already, but many, many, many fled to the United States. There was a ton of Cuban refugees living in, in, in Miami at the time. And there are many more that were still on boats. Guys, I mean, there we you just were growing up. You guys remember, there was tons of stories of Cuban refugees getting off, getting onto uh, 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 the land. You remember the kid? Elian uh, Gonzalez. Elian Gonzalez, thank you. Elian Gonzalez, yeah. Who actually, do you know what happened to Elian Gonzalez? No. Joe Camp, go. He became like a gorilla, basically, and then went back to fight for Castro, I heard. Yes, he joined oh, yeah. the ranks of Castro's military. Yeah, because remember, I think it was his father got custody of him, if I'm not mistaken. Was it his father? Back to yeah. Cuba. He went back. Yeah, he was like a major lieutenant in Castro's military. They went hardcore on Castroizing that kid. So what some of the things they wanted to do was they were going to start rumors, uh, use clandestine radios and things, and just kind of get people chattering about Cuba looking to attack the United States, right? Or Cuba looking to stir up some issues in South America. Um, they were going to land, quote-unquote, friendly Cubans in uniform and to do some over-the-fence attacks at Guantanamo. So, they, you know, look, I mean— Let's they they're gonna play on the fact that you don't know it's the same thing in Vietnam. You didn't know the difference between a North Vietnamese and South Vietnamese, right? And there's you don't know who's a Castro sympathizer and not. They're not wearing uniforms necessarily, right? Um, they were gonna capture Cuban friendlies. They were they were, these people be, be paid for by the United States government 
and as quote unquote saboteurs right inside the base um, start riots near the, the, the base main gate. Again, those would all be Cuban friendlies that were on the payroll of the CIA, but you know, they're rioting in the name of Castro, right. Uh, against the U S and these are just things that kind of amp up the world and huh, what's Cuba doing? Why, 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 why are they causing trouble? They were going to blow up in uh, ammunition inside the base. They're going to start fires, burn aircrafts, right? You have to do some sabotage. They were going to lob mortar shells from outside of the base into it, you know, damage some installations, capture some assault teams that were approaching from the sea to Guantanamo City. You know, these are all things that they're going to try to do to capitalize and, and, and really kind of start the world looking funny at Castro. They were going to capture a militia group, which they were, you know, going to, you know, quote unquote, storm the base. Um, they were going to sink a ship near the harbor entrance and then in their own words, and I quote, conduct funerals for mock victims. And, you know, so they were going to make up the names of, of false Americans or false victims, whether they're American or not, all right, and have funerals for these people. The, um, the United States was going to respond by, you know, executing uh, offensive operations, right? Get the water supply, the power supplies, destroying artillery and all that stuff. Um, and then that would commence large scale United States military operations. Here's another idea that they were going to go with. A quote unquote, remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. And now, if you, any of you guys from back from American history remember the main, uh, does any, any of you guys know what remember the main is referring to? Joe, what you got? What Joe Camp? Um, World War One. Nope. That's the Lusitania. Close That's, Lusitania. Uh, That's the Lusitania. Good, it good was guess. Ship being hit or blown up by an yes. enemy. So. Yeah. And, and uh, the port of Havana in the Spanish American War. Yes, the main oh, was blown up. Two hundred years. That's it. Yeah, yeah, but close enough. Close enough. So I remember the main type incident, right? In other words, staging a an incident that could get the people behind going to a war, right? Hmm. Interesting. Like a I don't know Gulf of Tonkin type deal, right? Huh. I quote. It says it right here on page eight. We could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba, like. They- that's government writing. Like, what's hey, great is that clearly was their playbook. Like, let's just make some shit, and that'll give us reasons to do other shit. We could blow up a U.S. ship on, in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. Period. Okay, that, that's that's a that's under the remember the main topic, right? That's a B. We could blow up a drone, which is an unmanned vessel, anywhere in the Cuban waters. Yeah, we could do it that way. We could arrange to cause such incident in the vicinity of Havana or Santiago as a spectacular result of Cuban attack from the air or the sea, hey, or both. They're hitting us from everywhere. Just, you know, and I had this part underlined: uh, the presence of Cuban planes or ships merely investigating the intent of the vessel could be fairly compelling evidence that the ship was taken under attack. So you blow up something, right, off the coast of Cuba. You wait until the Cuban vessels, ships, and the Navy gets there to see what the hell just blew up out here. You take pictures really quick, and you're like, bam, see? They did it. They did it. Brilliant move, right? Very smart. Smart move. And they go on to say the nearness to Havana or Santiago, and Santiago would add credibility, Right, especially to those people that might have heard the blast or seen the fire. Now, remember, Cuba's 90 miles away from the United States. I mean, you have American boats 
in, you know what I mean? In between that area, you know, they don't necessarily have to be in and around Cuba, but having a massive explosion and, and being seen by some American ship is not a crazy, you know, thought to think, you know? Um, and I had this part underlined as well. The U S could follow up with an air sea rescue operation covered by U S fighters to quote unquote, evacuate remaining members of the non-existent crew. Casualty lists in New York uh, in U.S. newspapers would cause a helpful way wave of national indignation, right? So again, just this fake list of Americans, quote unquote, Americans killed. These are all just fake people, right? Which means who also kind of has to be in on this, maybe unwittingly or not, would be the American media. You know, like that's. There, there, this goes, this is a pretty big, now again, unwitting, maybe unwitting, they could just be printing the names that they got, but at the same time, yeah, we're saying, this goes far and wide, you know? It's, you don't, it sounds like something that they would have been fed the information on purpose. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of like you dangle, it's kind of like you dangle the bait and you watch them just use it and just play around sure. with it and they'll, they'll just take it. Yeah. Oh, and it gets it gets better. That this is only that's only number three. I think there's uh, I want to say there is eight. <laughs> no nine. So we're only at number three. So here we go. Number four. In their own, they could they could in their own words they can develop a quote communist Cuban terror campaign in Miami, in Florida, and even in Washington. They were going to have Cubans, right, roll up. And do mass shootings could be in schools, could be in supermarkets, could be in the National Mall, right? Uh, it could be Cuban areas within Miami and just go and murder uh, Cuban refugees, right? And the point was that they would, um, again, be acting as Cubans, you know, communist Cubans taking, uh, taking part in terrorist attacks on American soil. I quote, we could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida real or simulated <laughs> is that hey, kind of like a boatload it's what? actually i think the, the truest use of the term boatload i've ever seen it actually <laughs> makes the most sense you know it's what i mean your minute itself <laughs> it's it, it's pretty accurate you know um and so it, it's yeah we can we could sink a boatload a literal load of cubans on a boat can I- you know, and the fact that they go real or simulated, which shows you the cold bloodedness of this particular thing. Like we could just kill humans. It's no big deal. You know, like when we were talking about um, Mussolini, it was only a child. There's only one life. Right. Yeah. It's only one person. Right. I mean, it, the smallness of human life when it's just a few to the United States government, they were going to uh, create a, a again, a fake Cuban military operation. So they were going to create a fake military operation against Haiti or the Dominican Republic or Guatemala or Nicaragua, okay? And they were going to essentially uh, fund it and create what's uh, create. They were going to make fake Cuban B twenty six or C forty six type aircraft that can go burn um, cane fields in the middle of the night. They were going to drop some Soviet block incendiaries that could be found, right? And so drop some Soviet stuff and make it look like the the Cubans were, you know, prov- uh, 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 provoking a war with other Latin American countries, right? They were going to um, 
coupled with, quote unquote, Cuban messages to the communist underground in the Dominican Republic and, quote, Cuban shipments of arms, which would be found or intercepted on the beach. Right? Find all this stuff, right? Where Cuba's just like, dude, what the fuck? <laughs> we didn't do this. We didn't do this. And, and it would, you know, like, ha you know, the United States wringing its fingers. Now, number six, they were going to make fake MIGs, fake uh, Cuban MIGs. So take an, a, a United States plane and try to redress it as best as they could and make it look like a Cuban MIG. And these MIG-type planes, quote, would be useful as complementary actions. An F-86 properly painted would convince air pass passengers that they saw a Cuban MIG, especially if the pilot of the transport, transport were to announce such fact. I am Cuban MIG. Look at me. Right? And, like, as they're... Worst Cuban accent ever. <laughs> It's communist accent. Uh, What's the most Russian Cuban I've ever heard? Stupid American. <laughs> I am Cuban. Go Castro. I like baseball and uh, cigars. So, yes. Um, so they were going to do this this type of stuff. Yeah, they were going to produce like fake MiGs and, and, and bomb planes and areas. Number seven, hijacking attempts against uh, civil air and surface craft. Uh, so, you know, they were going to you know do some hijacking and stuff. Number eight, um, they were going to – oh, here's the big one. I'm going to save number eight. I'm going to go to number nine first. Wait, okay. can I guess what number eight was? No, don't were ruin it. Don't, gonna, don't they steal my thunder. Balloons over the country and then shoot down the weather balloons? Or is that – am I, I messing that up with something else? Dude, I told you, don't ruin it. <laughs> That's not what it was, was it? I'm done. I'm going. That's it. We're over. No. To quote Hamlet, no. Act 3, Scene 3, Line 92. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. That's amazing. So, number nine. They were going to feign... All right. So, they're going to have a an American pilot under an alias in a, an American plane that doesn't exist, so they're going to paint like fake tail numbers on it, right? Flying around Cuba and be like, Mayday! Mayday! I'm going down! And it would, the pilot would then fly directly west to at an extremely low altitude and land at a secure base, right, at Eglin Air Force Base. Quote, the aircraft would be met by proper people, quickly stored and given a new tail number. The pilot who had performed the mission under an alias would resume his proper identity and return to his normal place of business, and the pilot and aircraft would then uh, have disappeared at precisely the same time that the aircraft was presumably shot down. Right? Mayday, mayday, I'm being shot at by the Cuban authorities, right? A submarine or small surface craft would disperse F-101 parts, a parachute, right, etc., at approximately 15 to 25, 20 miles off the Cuban coast uh, and depart. The pilots returning to Homestead would then thus have a story as far as they knew. Search ships and aircrafts could be dispatched and parts of the aircraft would be found, right? So then... I was going to say, instead of them doing all that to protect this plane and change numbers and the pilot, there's always that risk of that guy now opening up his mouth and telling someone what happened. I'm pretty sure if they were ever going to do it, they would just shoot that plane down. Maybe. As I said, that guy wouldn't make it very far enough. They have no problem, quote-unquote, killing a boatload of Cubans trying to escape Cuba. What makes you think they wouldn't kill one pilot in a plane? Yeah. No, you're right. 
So this is number eight. I'm going to read this one for the most part. I know I've done a lot of reading from here, but it's just they, they put it so plainly that it's just like, my Lord. Number eight, it is possible to create an incident which will demonstrate convincingly that a Cuban aircraft has attacked and shot down a chartered civil airliner en route from the United States to Jamaica, Guatemala, Panama, or Venezuela. The destination would be chosen only to cause the flight plan, flight, the flight plan route to cross Cuba. The passengers could be a group of college students off on a holiday or any grouping of persons with a common interest to support chartering a non-scheduled flight. Imagine, imagine using a plane and the destruction of a plane to cast a, uh, I don't know, an attack um, and get people behind, I don't know, fighting a war against a country who may, may or may not have actually used a plane. Interesting concept. Very right? sounds oddly familiar. Yeah. An aircraft at Eglin Air Force Base would be painted and numbered as an exact duplicate for a civil registered aircraft belonging to a CIA proprietary organization in the Miami area. At a designated time, the duplicate would be substituted for the actual civil aircraft and would be loaded with selected passengers, all boarded under carefully prepared aliases. The actual registered aircraft would be converted to a drone, right? So they're going to put these people on a plane and the other, the actual plane, right, will, would be a drone, an unmanned. Takeoff times of the drone aircraft and the actual aircraft will be scheduled to allow a rendezvous south of Florida. From the rendezvous point, the passenger carrying aircraft will, be, will descend to minimum altitude and go directly into an auxiliary field at Eglund Air Force Base, where arrangements will have been made to evacuate the passengers and return the aircraft to its original status. They're all CIA operatives, right? If they're all CIA operatives that are just physically walking onto a plane wearing, you know, uh, vacation clothes, and you don't necessarily need to put a bullet in their head, you know? Right. I'm just saying, we're, we're, not, we're not far off from what they're willing to do. As no, far you're as right. Sacrifice. Right. So Pretty the wild. drone aircraft... Meanwhile, we'll continue to fly the, fly, the filed flight plan. When, when over Cuba, the drone will, will, will be transmitting on the international distress frequency of Mayday, a message stating that it is under attack from Cuban MiG aircraft. Right? The transmission will be interrupted by destruction of the aircraft, which will be triggered by a radio signal. This will allow ICAO radio stations in the western hemisphere right those are these are international like, these are independently run like ham radios and shit right so all of these like ham radio stations will be able to pick up the mayday and the destruction call and it'll allow those people to tell the united states what has happened to the aircraft instead of the u.s trying to quote unquote sell the incident so there's a lot of stuff to unpack in oh, operation yeah. And a lot of this stuff, I'm pretty sure we saw in the playbook of Vietnam, for sure, with the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. Look, man, it sounds ooh, eerily similar to 9-11, which is I'm not trying to say that anything. Look, man, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm not going down the path of saying that 9-11 is anything other than it was. But I'm telling you, that just sounds pretty eerie. It's pretty weird. Joe, go ahead. Camp, you had your hand. 
was going to say the same thing. I'm not buying into any of the 9-11 conspiracies or anything like that, but I think when you hear those conspiracies and then you hear this that was real, you you can understand maybe why people would believe that conspiracy. Yeah. You know I mean? So now I'm just saying I get the the tie-in of it. So this brings me to something else that I kind of wanted to talk about, and it's called PNAC, or it's uh, also known as Project for a New American Century. And uh, are any of you guys familiar with this group? Hold on one second. Before you, before you go further, I just want to circle back to Camp's uh, comment that he made. That as far as like we haven't essentially what you have here is a copy of their playbook. Of what mm-hmm. they're willing to do in nineteen sixty, and, and I agree with you. I don't believe that it's real. I don't. I'm not. I don't buy into the conspiracy theories. But when you now have a copy of their playbook, it's a little fucking scary. It is. Pardon my French. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, because you read about this. But this got passed the cabinet and was only shut down by the president. Yes. Now, thank you for so, like, I, everyone. Okayed this and was like, "Yes, we're gonna do this. Yes, we're gonna go figure. We're gonna go start this war." And then the president was like, "What the fuck are you guys crazy? We're not gonna shoot down citizens. We're not gonna make any of this. We're not. We're not doing this." Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. And so it got to Bob McNamara's desk. Bob McNamara brought it to Ken, uh, President Kennedy, and President Kennedy said no. You know, to quote Hamlet, right? <laughs> he was, <laughs> he said, "No, not different at all." Different guy, different guy. Yeah. This may have went down. Yeah, man. And which crazy because, well, and then this guy Lyman Lemnitzer, right? LL Lemnitzer. That's the guy that who he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, within a few months, he was no longer the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he his contract was not renewed in that position because Kennedy was like, this dude's crazy. We can't. Mm-mm. Uh, go ahead, Mike. Um, if you would just enlighten us, exactly when did that happen where Ken- Kennedy said, no, we are not doing this? This is taking place late, uh, a couple of weeks after March. It's, it's maybe July 62, around that area. And I'm sorry, when did uh, Mr. Kennedy uh, become assassinated? It would be November 63. So yeah. yeah, it's um yeah. And interestingly enough, they actually at the same time period, they also had talked about John Glenn. Are you familiar with John Glenn? John Glenn's the, the first man to orbit the earth, right? Yeah. He's doing this in the summer of nineteen sixty-two. They also floated the idea that God forbid something happened to John Glenn upon re-entry, they were thinking about blaming the Cubans. That upon his re-entry, they they hit him with a missile. You know what I mean. So they would say it was a perfect, um, it's the perfect cover up on that one, because number one, you save face in NASA, right? We didn't lose our man. Number two, right? You give, right? Project Northwoods exactly what it was looking for. Okay. So, go ahead, Joe. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we could have gotten into the war, they make a plan to get into a war. No, no, no. This is prior. This is prior. Although you said it was March 62. That is prior. Oh, man. Man, I didn't nap. I didn't nap. I read October, March. That's okay. So, yeah, it, this is, yeah, because at this point, that would, that's what made 
you know, uh, the 13 days in the Cuban Missile Crisis so crazy for Kennedy because Kennedy worked his ass off to make sure that we didn't go to nuclear war during the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then he has his jackasses on his side trying to start the nuclear war. And he was just like, what are you doing? Yeah. It proves why it is a good idea to have a civilian as the head of the military rather than a general, right? That's you, because if there was a general ahead of the military, that person would have been part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who would have been on board with this. And who knows what would have taken place, you know? And, um, and also what we're seeing here is a pretty extreme right-wing conservative movement within the military at this time to push for this war, right? Uh, to, to go forward on this war because, you know, as we know, Kennedy was a Democrat and they looked at him as soft on communism, which would have been a liberal view at the time that, that he wasn't conservative enough and he wasn't a war hawk enough. Now, back to PNAC, as I had said, I am not going to go as far as to say, I, let me, I guess I'll amend my statement. I'm not, I'm not willing to say that the United States was not aware uh, of 9-11 happening prior to. I'm not willing to say that. I'm, I'm, what I'm willing to say is that uh, I'm, I think anything is possible, especially after reading this and knowing things about PNAC and the people that were in there. Am I saying that the United States absolutely 100% either had a hand or knew about it? No, but I am not willing to say that they didn't either. You know, uh, my, my, my knowledge and studying of American history has told, shown me otherwise. But anyways, PNAC is, it's, it's, it's called, it's, it's, it stands for Project for a New American Century. It's a think tank group put together in 96 to 98. And the guys that are the head of PNAC you might have heard of them, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, right? Uh, uh, Armitage, uh, Dick Cheney, right? These are these are folks you guys may have heard of. Where oddly enough, you know where these guys all worked together the first time was under the Nixon administration, right? So the band got back together in the late '90s, and so they put together this whole idea. And essentially, what PNAC is, I read the entire document. It's a couple hundred pages long. I had nothing to do for a little while and, and read it. And uh, not for this, but I mean, years back. And so essentially what it states is that in 1998, the United States has an unprecedented position in the world. They um, are the strongest military in the world. They have really, really strong, rich friends throughout the world. There's nobody really gunning for the United States. We're in pretty good position right now. Like, we're okay. We, we are in the midst of a very, very good economic growth for an unprecedented amount of time. Right, the late '90s was good. We had the dot com bubble and all that stuff. The '80s was pretty good. You know what I mean? Like they were like, "Yeah, we're we're sitting pretty right now." What we need to do is we need to get our asses over to the Middle East. That's what we need to do. We got to get a foothold in the Middle East because that oil, that oil is power, and we need to get us a piece of that power. And so they go in and they start talking about. They, they, at this time, the United States was spending less than 3% of its GDP on defense, right? That's the lowest uh, that it has been at any time since World War II. These guys are saying we need to be, we need to, dis, we need to, to be spending 35 to 3.8% of our GDP on defense. That's a lot of money, right? That's a massive increase in your military. But like I stated, everything's going pretty good. In the United States, we're not fighting anybody. So the, the folks in the government, the, the people, they're not going to be okay 
right? With us spending all of this money for our military defense. You know what I mean? Um, and, Obviously and, without justification. Well, I mean, yeah. If something had gone on, then like, okay, well, we understand. So um, they're talking about this new revolution in military capabilities, global missile defense. They want to try to, and, and I quote, provide a secure basis for U.S. power projection around the world. They want to create this space force. You know the one that, that, that Trump did? Yeah, that was a Rumsfeld-Wolfowitz idea back in 98, right? That's what they were trying to do. And they understand, though, that this, this, and I quote, this process of transformation is likely to be a long one, right? It's going to take a long time for us to get people on board to do this. Uh, quote, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Before the year was out, now this was released in 2000. Before the, the, the year is out, obviously we know what happens in 2001, right? And everything that PNAC wanted to do is exactly what they did. And gee, it's just odd to think, who was in the administration? Uh, Bush administration. Wow, wasn't it? Oh shit, it was. It was Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and Armitage and Cheney. Interesting, right? And you know what? Oddly enough, too, Cheney was actually tapped by George Bush to lead a committee to survey who should be George Bush's running mate. And Dick Cheney came back and said, huh, they picked me. Hmm. <laughs> so I can only fly with George W, though. I mean, he's the only one that would be like, yeah, sounds good. All right. Mm -hmm dumb enough to do it right like you know well you know like he's like the, the the band member that's just like i'm just happy to be here you know yeah. like that was that was george w like you know like, i'm just i'm just happy to be here you know uh, anyways so again it's just odd because this this pearl harbor type event goes back to and i quote where is it um yes Part number three, a remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. And now this is dating back to 62. And so the idea of using a prior type of national cataclysm to spark a war uh, is not something that the United States government, we know damn well, is, was, is against doing. You know, and if you do, you know, again, it's not about 9-11, but it is just odd, right, that you had Bush in there. But anyways... Project Northwoods, when you read it, you know, as you guys have stated, it, it kind of gives you, it's an eerie feeling, you know, reading it. And, and when you get the playbook and you say, wow, well, this is what a bunch of ultra conservative folks were thinking back in 1962. And you had also a bunch of neo, neo conservatives in office and in, in PNAC in the late 90s and in office in the early 2000s and what took place. So again, you make the chat, you, you know, you make the connections. We're just here to tell you guys the story of. To lighten the mood a little bit, have any of you seen the movie Canadian Bacon with John Candy? John Candy, yes. Where we have a fictional war with Canada. It's, it's a funny movie. And that's what I was thinking this whole time. Yep, absolutely. That, that, was, a, that, was, a, that was a good movie. Yeah. Um, that is very funny. <laughs> Wag the Dog is another one. Yep. Um, that, which is a an idiom, right? That is uh, known as a that's an idiom for uh, the media starting a war. Uh, but yeah, anyways, that's all we got for tonight, folks. I think we uh, we hit this one 
pretty damn hard. Do we guys have any um any last let's 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 go around and uh let's let's put together what we would be the story of declassified documents. What do we got? Let's start us off. How about Joe? Uh Joe, start us off in the story of declassified documents. You were you were a listen to listener of all stories. Go ahead, start us off. What you got? What's the story of declassified documents? Um the story of declassified documents is it's not well known or widespread. Mm. So these things just happen behind closed doors and until someone brings it to light or a documentary is made or some journalist takes interest. Nobody knows about any of this stuff. I knew about Northwood from uh, hearing about it on another podcast years ago and not in as much detail as you put into it. I had no idea about the human trials of nuclear testing. Um, I knew the Pentagon papers existed, but I didn't know anything about them or what was in them because it was just not something that was taught to me or something that if I didn't look into myself, I wouldn't know. So in the idea, you learn from your mistakes. If you don't know what your mistakes are, how do you learn? That's right. Yeah. Joe, Joe Camp. Well, guys, I think we have to go back to like, and Joe just said it too. You don't learn this stuff in school. So Mm -hmm. there is way more out there than, than what's being taught to you. And You know, I, I can't really blame you. We, you know, Smith, you and I are both educators. We can't really blame the system. It, it's just, it's way too much information to get across. There, there's so many things. We, we have time in a school year to, to finish this. You know what I well, mean? When you, when you tie a class to a standardized test at the end of the year, it, it is it is very much made sure that you won't learn this stuff. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if that's uh, by design, but it's certainly a, a, an absolute effect of it. For sure. Yeah. Mike, what you got? So the declassified documents topic was a topic that I had suggested. Mm. And I picked it because I know that there's more stories out there that we don't know about. But the fact that we can take some of these interesting topics and bring them to light and kind of tell the story of them to me, it's more of a, one, for us, a, a learning point, and two, to be able for us to now educate people about what we've learned. I, yeah. I've really enjoyed it, and I can definitely see us returning to this topic again in the future. Amen. And I hope that oh, yeah. everybody listening got something out of this, more than they, they would have gotten in a class in high school or wherever, hey. and learned something different. No, no. Well, I'm not to discredit what you do, but <laughs> like you said, you're you're very restricted on what you're allowed to teach them, and you want people to learn the real history of what goes on and not what is being fed to us, of what we think history is. Yeah, and luckily, in in my American history class, they actually have gotten rid of our state standardized test, and uh, I've been I've been blessed the last few years to be unshackled by a standardized test and I can actually teach my kids about this stuff which is which is interesting it has been a lot more fun to do you're right yeah but most places I don't know about everywhere else if it has the same exact you know Mm -hmm. know, standardized testing or they don't but you know like we said we didn't learn any of this stuff in school we had the regents the regents was a pain and they still do the regents is still a thing you know I think for me 
What did you get but, from it? You know, what did you what did we really get out of that education from school besides just trying to memorize a bunch of information just to get through a test? Yeah. You know, these at this point now learning this stuff, I don't think I'll ever forget a lot of the stuff that we weren't. No. Yeah. And it makes you a little bit more um I know when I was learning this uh after high school in my college years, I got a little bit more resentful. Uh I got a little angry. You know, it bothered me a little bit. I felt as if I was lied to. And I can't tell you how many times I've taught my students lessons about i don't i hate to use the term real history but you know i've taught my students topics and things that have happened and their question to me was why has everybody lied to me and um and my answer to them was i don't i wouldn't blame a teacher necessarily for lying to you but it is a curriculum that has you know conveniently omitted quite a few stories and facts and things of that nature. But I guess when it, when, when I think of this topic, uh, you know, the story of declassified documents is there was a, a damn good reason the government had to classify these documents in the first place, you know, and that's, that's the thing to me that sticks out was, you know, we were, we're fortunate enough to get our hands on these declassified document uh, documents, but imagine, I mean, look, we, we got access to this, you know, for example, Northwoods was it took place in 62 wasn't declassified until 92 imagine the shit that we're going to find out in 30 years from now 2053 right as we are we are recording this podcast now imagine the crazy things we're going to learn about that is that is declassified at that time you know and so it'll be a a a constant wheel of uh of pretty craziness so i think that's uh i think that's all we got for tonight Gentlemen, I thank you so much for your time. I think we hit this one pretty hard. Um, and so, guys, ladies and gentlemen out there, please, please, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast Story of wherever you are listening to us. Please subscribe, like, give us a rating of five. We appreciate it. You will help us to become uh, more visible to other podcast lovers around the world. Um, that's it for us tonight. And remember... There's more to your history than what's in the books. All right, uh, people, we love you out there. Stay you, stay weird, stay out there, and adios, fuckers.